Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Jared Friedman, partner of Y Combinator, to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. Let's kick things off, Jared. Can you share a brief intro with us on yourself and Y Combinator? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks. I'm happy to be here. So I am, as Chan said, a group partner at Y Combinator. Um, Y Combinator, if you don't know it, is an investor in early stage companies. And it's also a program where we run a three-month program twice a year to help startups get to the next stage. And I joined Y Combinator about six years ago. Before that, I was a founder in a very early Y Combinator company. I started a company back in 2006 called Scribd. I ran that company for 10 years, and then I joined YC. And, and Jared, throughout your career, what, what's been your North Star, I guess, the, the common thread, if you will, tying all your work together? Yeah, well, it's been startups. I love startups. <laughs> um, I really, in college, I always wanted to start a company. And when Y Combinator was created, um, well, I was, I'm... I'm old enough now that I was around for when Y Combinator was founded in in 2005. And all of a sudden there was somebody that was interested in investing in college students that wanted to start companies. And I was like, that's my place. And so I actually dropped out of college and I joined one of the first Y Combinator batches. And I worked in my company for 10 years. And during those 10 years, I started angel investing in my friends' companies. I'd go to Y Combinator's alumni demo day every batch. And I'd invest in a couple of cool companies. And I realized that I liked that too. And when I got finished working on Scribd, I decided to join my Combinator so I could help even more startups. So my whole adult life has been startups. And I, I think to piggyback off that, being on the bleeding edge and the startups you've been a part of, one, one question we like to ask our guests is, comes from Dennis Gabor, uh, electrical engineer and really the recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, uh, but the future can be invented. What does inventing the future mean to you, Jared? Hmm. Well, I certainly think that that's true, just based on my experience at Y Combinator. It's not so much that it was inevitable that these companies would succeed. Like there is absolutely a world, like some, some parallel universe out there in which there is no Airbnb, in which there is no Stripe, in which those companies were not created. It wasn't just inevitable that someone was going to create Airbnb. Um, Airbnb exists because the Airbnb founders created Airbnb. It wasn't like the world could have turned out quite differently. Thank you so much for that and really appreciate the overview in the beginning around Y Combinator. Would love to dive in more specifically to YC's biotech section. So would love to better understand A, generally what makes YC such a magical place for startups overall and also more specifically for biotech startups and how you all even got interested in biotech in the first place. Awesome. Let's talk about that. Okay. So Here's the deal. Y Combinator was started in 2005. And originally, we just funded 
websites and apps, only software companies. In fact, for the first almost 10 years, we only really funded software companies. And over those like 10 years, we were fortunate enough to fund some really successful companies like Airbnb and Stripe and Dropbox and Reddit. Um, and those early successes enabled us to expand the program and to think about other ways that we could have like an even bigger impact in the world. And in 2013, the then president of Y Combinator, Sam Altman, was getting really interested in synthetic biology. And now, of course, everybody knows that synthetic biology is like a huge deal. But back in 2013, it was not quite as obvious to the world that synthetic biology was truly going to be a revolution. And Sam was just following it a lot. He'd talk to scientists, he'd read about the awesome work that was being done, and he became increasingly convinced that there was uh, something really important happening here. And he wrote a blog post in which it's a short blog post, you can find it online, which is, he was basically just like, hey, I think synthetic biology is going to be a really big thing. If you're starting a company and you're interested in working on it, email me. And um, it just so happens that right around that time, Jason Kelly, the founder of Ginkgo Bioworks, was interested in raising money from investors. And he emailed Sam. And that is how Y Combinator ended up being the first investor in Ginkgo Bioworks. And that was the start of the bio program. So um, we invested in Ginkgo Bioworks in the summer of 2014. That was the first bio company that we funded. And it was pretty clear to us early on that Ginkgo Bioworks was a special company. It wasn't you know, totally clear that they would go public and be worth billions of dollars like they are now all the way back then. But even early on, it was clear that there was something really special going on there and that we should fund more companies like Ginkgo Bioworks. And so we followed it up and we wrote more blog posts <laughs> encouraging more kinds of companies in the life sciences to apply, encouraging therapeutics companies and medical device companies and diagnostics companies. And what happened next was a lot of them applied to Y Combinator. And we were in the early years actually pretty surprised at how many life science companies applied to Y Combinator the first year or two that we were funding them because Back at that time, back in 2014, 2015, we didn't really have any track record funding companies in the life sciences. We, like, we didn't have a success record of doing it. And we didn't have a ton of domain experience on the team. These days on the Y Combinator team, we have a lot of like really serious domain experts in the life sciences. But at the time, we didn't have anyone on the YC team that had an MD or a PhD. And this, sure enough, lots of really promising companies applied to YC even back in those early days. And we invested in them. And a lot of them started doing really well. And it actually took us quite a while, actually like several years to really understand what was going on and why all these really promising life science companies and these really brilliant scientists and doctors and engineers were applying to YC wanting to start a company in the life sciences. And after we like really started to understand it, we decided to double down on the bio program in a big way. And we hired folks for the YC team that are experts that have helped us really offer a lot more tactical advice and support to the companies in the life sciences portfolio. We spent a lot of time creating a whole track for bio companies within the YC program where we offer a lot of specialized support and resources for the things that they uniquely need. And we spent a lot of time doing recruiting where we actually flew around to colleges and universities and labs and medical schools all around the country and all around the world talking about 
why they should start a bio company and encouraging them to take research that they were doing in academia and to spin it out into a startup. And we ended up funding a lot of those. And that's really what we've been doing for the last like seven years is just progressively doubling down on the bio program. Just to share a couple of quick stats on that. So in 2013, we funded our first bio company. We have now funded over 500 companies in the life sciences. This year in 2021, we will fund about 100, which makes us actually the largest investor in life science companies in the world. We will this year invest in more life science companies than any other investor of any kind anywhere in the world. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of how far we've come, but I still feel like we've still actually only scratched the surface. I actually think we should be funding three or 400 bio companies per year. And that's what I'm working on over the next few years. That's awesome. I really appreciate you sharing more on the trends you've seen and the unique perspective you've been able to have on the other side of the table, so to speak, with YC, as well as the lessons you've learned and building up YC's biotech arm, as well as working really closely with all of these different biotech founders and definitely a lot of stuff we'll want to double click on later on in the podcast, especially around university ecosystems and university-driven entrepreneurship. So I'd love to, for now, dive a little bit deeper into the concept of founder-driven biotechs. I know it's something that you've talked a lot about and believe in. And so we'd love to hear a little bit more about how you define that and what are the main opportunities and challenges you see with this type of company. Absolutely. So as I mentioned early on, when we first launched the bio program, we were surprised at how many great scientists were applying to YC. And um, we didn't actually understand the biotech funding ecosystem very well back in 2013 and 2014. It, it took us actually a few years to understand why so many promising companies were applying to YC. And here, here is the reason. The reason is there are a lot of other biotech VCs that existed long before YC began funding biotech companies. But it turns out that those biotech VCs generally don't fund the kinds of companies that YC was funding. Generally, biotech VCs are set up to fund two kinds of companies. Um, the first kind of company is companies that they create themselves. And this is sometimes called the company formation model. And roughly how it works is the VC fund finds some interesting ideas, maybe from a university. They find some experienced managers and an experienced CEO to run it. And they sort of like create a founding team to go and run it. And then they fund the company themselves. So that's company formation where the VC largely creates the company. And then the second thing is they will sometimes fund founders that are very experienced, people who have a long track record in the pharma industry who have had successes before and want to do something new. The companies that we were funding were largely recent PhDs and postdocs, sometimes junior faculty, but in general, people who had not had a big commercial success before, who were first-time founders, who were scientists that had done some promising research in academia and wanted to spin it out into a company. And it turns out that there's actually, at, that, at the time, there really was not a good funding ecosystem for people like that. And that's why they were coming to YC. And when we realized that, it became clear to us that there was, what two things became clear to us. One, that it was a big opportunity because there was a real gap in the market of what biotech VCs were funding because we thought that that profile founder was very promising. And the second thing that became clear was that actually it was a good opportunity for Y Combinator specifically 
to invest in, even though we didn't have deep bio expertise at the time. And um, I want to double click on the second one and why we felt that Y Combinator was actually really well positioned to fund those kinds of companies. It turns out that what was happening in biotech over the last five years has extremely deep and strong parallels to what happened in the tech ecosystem between 2005 and 2010 that Y Combinator both helped create and also rode the wave of. And the thing that was happening um, was this. Back in 2005, VCs were not funding what we call young technical founders. If you were somebody who can build a website yourself and didn't have an MBA, hadn't worked at an, as an executive at a large company, it was very difficult for you to raise money from VCs. VCs wanted to fund people who were experienced managers and executives who had run companies before. They didn't care that much whether they were tactical or not. And Y Combinators start, like the whole reason that Y Combinator became successful in the first place is that we were one of the first investors who was interested in funding tactical founders that were first-time founders that didn't have a lot of management and business experience. And we funded a bunch of those companies, like the Stripe founders are sort of a extreme example. They were 17 and 18 years old when we funded them, I believe. And um, they ended up creating a multi-billion dollar payments company. So that worked out really well. And so it turned out that YC's strategy of funding that sort of profile of person was a really promising and successful strategy. And the reason why it was a good idea to do that in 2005 was that 2005 was right around the time when it finally became possible for people like that to start a successful company. In 1995, 10 years ago, it really wasn't possible for founders like that to start a successful company. And the reason it was, it was just too capital intensive to get a new business off the ground. Before you could launch a website back in those days, you needed millions of dollars to buy servers and buy internet connectivity. And there were all these barriers to actually just like getting a technology company off the ground. It was very difficult for first time founders to raise the capital required to do it. But by 2005, the costs to do that had come way, way down. And so people like the Stripe founders could actually launch a successful FinTech company all by themselves. And what we saw happening in biotech was exactly the same thing where 10 years ago, it was very difficult for anyone who's not an experienced biotech founder to start a biotech company because the very first thing that they had to do was raise like bajillions of dollars, get a huge lab space, build all this fixed infrastructure. And unless you were the sort of person that could raise $10 million off of a PowerPoint presentation, you were never gonna be able to do that. Um, but by 2015, all of that was changing where all of this infrastructure now exists between CROs and companies that will do experiments like by email and by website and by just sort of like the plummeting costs of, 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 of all the infrastructure that the biotech ecosystem depends on, it had suddenly become possible to start a biotech company on a very small amount of money. And that has the consequence of making it possible for a new kind of founder to start biotech companies. Founders that can't raise $10 million off of a PowerPoint because they have a long successful track record. Founders that just have a promising idea and a lot of energy and want to try it out. And since YC was sort of founded on the basis of giving those founders a shot, we felt like we had a really unique insight into not into like the science of biotech, but into the way that the biotech founder market was going to change and into this next generation of biotech companies that was going to be created.
That's awesome. That's super helpful insight. And I think really speaks to what types of founders and how you think about evaluating founders and opportunities in the context of YC as well. So really appreciate you sharing that. I'll pass it over now to Chaz. Thanks, Jessica. And Jared, to dive a little bit deeper, you talked about kind of the, the nuances of the origin stories of biotech. Really, YC is a global investor at this point. We, we've seen in biotech that there are are many different company archetypes, but you touched on this, especially in the United States, that each coast kind of has a this distinct philosophy, if you will, East versus West Coast. Can, can you tell us the differences you see between the entrepreneurial climates of these two geographies? Absolutely. And to be clear, I'm definitely going to paint in broad brushstrokes here. That <laughs> it is it is it is not the case that all East Coast investors think alike. We'll give you some more artistic investors. Think alike. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's certainly plenty of variation, but in broad strokes, there, there is a bit of a division in terms of there being two different blueprints for how to start a biotech company. And I'm going to call them the East Coast School of Thought and the West Coast School of Thought. I don't know that they really have official names. That's what I'll use here. And roughly speaking, the East Coast School of Thought is biotech companies should be started and run by experienced managers that have done it before. And when scientists have a promising idea, they should bring in an experienced management team and a CEO early to run the company and commercialize their discovery. The West Coast School is that the, the scientists that came up with the initial concept are the best people to commercialize their work. Maybe not forever, like maybe not for 20 years, but for the first many years of the company at least. And they should run their own companies and hire executives to fill in gaps in their expertise and experience. And those two different schools of thought really lead to very different company paths from the standpoint of the, of the scientific founders of the company. and very different paths in terms of who companies raise money from. And having seen companies with both paths, like my honest take is that like, I definitely believe that both blueprints can work. Both blueprints have definitely led to many billion dollar companies, but I'm particularly excited by the West Coast model because it's fundamentally sort of a newer model. The, the East Coast model was dominant for a really long time. And I see the West Coast model as sort of the disruptor to that, showing that there is an alternate path for scientific founders who don't want to just give their idea to other people to run with, who really want to build and run companies themselves, that it actually is possible to, to do that. Totally echo the sentiment there, Jared. And it's something that we feel as well, that we're living in a truly special time right now that allows for these scientific founders to come out of a postdoc PhD or, or even lesser experience thereof and uh, able to raise capital to a point where they can actually hit a value inflection and not need this $50 million series A and 20 years of farming experience in years past to truly make a, a meaningful difference in the world. And I, I think that conversation, y'all at Y Combinator have done an immense deal of pushing that forward. So on behalf of the biotech community, hearts goes out to you and thank you for that. Um, that. And there's been a lot of conversation around 
um, where we're going. And, and I think as we've seen in San Francisco, at least our, our colleagues are, are fleeing in, in Miami and Austin are coming, becoming the, the innovation hubs. It's something that I actually have thought quite a bit about uh, my, for myself as well. Like, do I stay in San Francisco in the long run and where biotech hubs and what does this become? I don't know if we're ever really going to have in maybe the next decade or two, this kind of decentralized remote first biotech company concept, but out of curiosity, I would love to kind of play that forward with you. Do you see the biotechs in general will be anchored around kind of this university based ecosystem going forward or where do you see as the future of biotech hubs? So I think it's a fascinating question and to be clear, I don't know for sure what the answer is, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from the history of what happened with software companies, which, because in, in, in a lot of ways, I see sort of the software startup ecosystem as being sort of 10 years ahead of the biotech startup ecosystem in terms of just like the way it has evolved. Software companies started very strongly clustered around hubs. If you were starting a, an internet company in 2007 and you weren't in Silicon Valley or maybe New York or maybe Boston, you were at a huge disadvantage. And very few companies started out of a couple of dominant tech hubs succeeded in that era. Since then, we've seen the tech world decentralize gradually at first from 2010 to 2020, I would argue that it decentralized gradually where there ended up being more companies popping up in the middle of the country and in Austin and more countries popping up in Latam and India and throughout Europe. And then when COVID hit in March of 2020, everything accelerated enormously. And we probably got you know 10 years of acceleration on that trend packed into a single year where now of course, it's increasingly common for software companies to be fully distributed. A large percentage of the most recent YC batch in a survey we did said that they were planning to be fully distributed forever. Um, a large percentage of even the larger YC companies that previously had a physical office pre-COVID have given up their lease permanently and committed to being completely remote forever. So um, clearly in the case of software companies, the trend is towards less centralization in startups hubs, which isn't to say that there's no centralization <laughs> anymore. Certainly there, you know, there still are startup hubs, but that is, that is the clear inexorable trend. Now for biotech, there is, there's, there's one future that you can imagine in which it follows exactly the same path as the tech companies where it started in hubs and then it just like completely decentralizes and they're remote biotechs everywhere. But there's a wrinkle that may prevent that from happening, which is that most biotech companies still have a physical lab space where people come in and do physical work that really cannot be done remotely. And so I think the, the question of whether biotech will decentralize away from these hubs really hinges on the question of what happens to the future of physical lab space. There is, of course, a subtrend that is happening, which is towards the rise of fully virtual biotechs. Um, we have a YC company from about a year ago called Pardes, which is building an antiviral drug for COVID. 
and they are a fully virtual biotech. They have raised gajillions of dollars and have a big team and have a ton of progress. They've done an incredible amount of experimental work. And they like to say the company does not own a single pipette. <laughs> it has been 100% uh, virtualized and done by CROs. And so I think, and, and as a result, they're able to hire a fully distributed team and not have any central office. So I think if companies like Pardace are the future, then I expect to see things going the same direction as the tech companies where they will largely decentralize away from biotech hubs and go fully remote. But for the ones that have physical lab space and choose to keep their experimental work in-house, I think it's gonna be difficult to get outside of a small number of biotech hubs as you just can't get a critical mass of the expertise needed to do that work anywhere else. To, to dive into that a little bit deeper, Jared, I, I think I've given founders a little bit more than uh, advice um, over the past year during COVID about they had this optionality of where to locate their companies. Curious, what, what advice would you give for founders locating their biotech startups? And, and even on top of that, it, it really advice for local leaders seeking to drive biotech innovation in their regions. So the advice that I give founders well, I'm curious, the advice that you've given founders, you said that you've given a lot of advice. I, I think on our end, we've always said talent and, and access to capital is, is the, the one-two punch. And that first and foremost, I, I think is starting to get a little bit more decentralized, but around these universities, ecosystems, uh, it, it's hard to beat the San Francisco's and Boston's of the world, but we're seeing Seattle, LA, Chicago, even uh, our friends over there starting Portal Innovations uh, coming up in the Fulton Market District, starting to become a, a powerhouse there. And that trend, as we're seeing decentralization happen, it, it really depends on top of the access of talent and capital, the style of the company. We're seeing now uh, like the solutions of the world, meaning a lot of physical space. And then based in Houston, Texas, makes sense. You see companies like Emerald Cloud Labs and others um, that are really trying to democratize uh, future lab space and really the virtualization of experiments. Those companies, does it make sense for them to be located uh, in, in, in prominent geos or can they have uh, an arbitrage on office space or land, whatever you want to say there? Uh, I think there's a good call to action for those companies to be based outside of um, the usual suspects. And that's something that you have to understand beyond just talent capital, why are companies that have a physical presence in, in that, that geo? Yeah, if I look at the YC bio portfolio, um, the largest clusters are still Boston and the Bay Area for sure. But there are definitely more companies being started in other places. New York City, Seattle, Texas, Colorado. So yeah, it's definitely distributing more. Um, I think if I were giving advice for a biotech company that was just starting out and trying to decide where to base themselves, I would say if you're planning to hire a lot of people to work on site at your company, you have to pick a place where the people that you're going to hire either already are or are willing to move to. <laughs> That's actually the biggest constraint. I think access to capital is going to 
decentralize and distribute a lot more quickly than access to talent. It's really easy for investors to invest in companies across the country. It's a lot harder to convince your like VP of something to move across the country to your office. Yeah. So in the beginning, obviously you mentioned YC, especially YC Biotech's big focus on university campuses and looking for founders with that profile. Um, so we'd love to hear a little bit more about what advice you'd give students considering turning their research into a startup. So specifically biggest mistakes as they think about transitioning or even like how they should make the most of their remaining time on campus in the university ecosystem. Absolutely. I love this question. So shortly before COVID hit in January of 2020, I went on a bio tour with a couple of my colleagues and we went and we flew around to essentially all of the biotech hubs in the US at least. And we met with students there, um, grad students, postdocs, medical students, all sorts of folks from, from the life sciences field who were interested in starting a company. And they were at all kinds of different stages. Some of them already had like really mature research that they were planning to spin out and just wanted like tactical advice on how to do it. Other people were super early. They just thought they might want to start a life science company someday. And they were trying to figure out if it was a good fit for them. And I absolutely loved that trip because I got to learn really firsthand how founders and future founders were thinking about it. And um, here's some advice based on those conversations. The first thing is there's a lot of really tactical steps involved in actually spinning research out of a university and starting a company. You have to figure out how to allocate equity with your team. You have to figure out who's gonna leave the university, who's gonna stay, who's gonna be a scientific founder. You have to figure out how you're gonna get the initial funding. You have to figure out how you're gonna license the IP. You have to figure out how you're gonna do lab space, if you're gonna to continue to use lab space at the university, and if so, how that affects the IP situation. There's all these like tactical questions. We got a lot of those. Um, and so I actually wrote a blog post <laughs> in which I walked through like all of those in great detail. Um, so if you're at that stage and you have those tactical questions, Google how to spin your scientific research out into a startup and you'll see my essay, it'll be at the top of a Google search results and goes into a lot of tactical advice on those. At a high level though, I wanna give like the thing that I, I saw as like the biggest mistake and the most important single piece of advice, which is that Founders in the life sciences are much too cautious about spinning research out. They are way too reluctant to do it. So if you have some research and you're thinking about spinning it out, you probably should. <laughs> Based on my experience, you are probably being too cautious about deciding if you should do it. And um, I'll give sort of a, a story to, to talk about why I think this is. A thing that we love doing at YC is going around to schools and talking to students who are interested in starting companies. So we've been doing it for years, since the very beginning of YC in 2005. And so I've done this now for folks who are in the life sciences, and I've done it for the computer science folks who are mostly starting software companies. And it is amazing when I go to MIT and I talk to the computer science undergrads who are like working on some website, versus I walk across campus and I go to the folks who are getting PhDs in biology who are thinking about starting companies because it's like entering two different universes. When I talked to the biology folks about starting companies, 
I talked to these, these incredible scientists who've been doing this research for years and they've sunk years and you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of NIH, of NIH funding into this research. And it's really far along and it's potentially world changing. It could save people's lives. It's like really amazing stuff. And I'm like, you should spin this out and start a company. And then they give me a list of like 17 reasons why they can't. <laughs> and I like end up like trying to convince them to do it. Versus when I go and I talk to the undergrads who are doing the, the undergrads and, and the grad students who are studying computer science, they're like, yeah, we dropped out of MIT a year ago to work on this app. And I'm like, so what does your app do? And they're like, well, it, uh, uh, it counts your score when you're playing ping pong. And I'm just like sitting there, I'm like, really? You like dropped out of your MIT PhD program to spend a year working on this app that like counts your score when you're playing ping pong or something like that? It's like, it's amazing how much more willing folks are to drop out and start software companies versus to start hard tech and biotech and life science companies. And um, as a result of this, I think there's really a, a huge gap where there are a ton of really promising companies in the life sciences that just aren't being started because the would-be founders behind them just aren't ready to take the plunge and actually do it yet. And one way that we see this is in the YC metrics of our acceptance rates for different kinds of applications. So. Um, when you apply to YC, you tell us what kind of company you're doing. Are you building a website? Are you building a biotech company? And if, if you look at our acceptance rates, our acceptance rates for biotech companies are 10 times our acceptance rates for companies who are building websites and apps, 10 times. The first time I saw that number, I figured it had to be some sort of like mistake or something in the way we were calculating it, but it's actually true. It's actually 10 times. And the reason is, people in biotech are so reluctant to actually start a biotech company that anyone who does is probably starting something that's really good. So that is my most important advice for people who are thinking about starting a biotech company. Do it. Jared, how, how do you see the future of go-to-market evolving in biotech? A lot of YC biotech companies that are doing sort of a dual track business model where they're developing their own assets, their own drugs that they plan to bring to market themselves. But in parallel, they're also providing services related to their core platform to other pharmaceutical companies to go after other indications or other targets so, so that it doesn't conflict with their, with their own program. And they're using the revenue that they get from these partnership deals to fund their own programs. And some of them are doing it so successfully that they're actually profitable early on, as you said, and are able to fund their own programs in large part through deals with third parties, um, as opposed to having to depend completely on investors to fund them. And I, I think that's a really fascinating trend and one that I see continuing. And then uh, before we come to a close here, really an amazing episode and thanks for these wonderful insights. Just a few rapid fire questions to to cap things off, uh, YC's invested in some incredible companies over the years. Can you kind of give us a little more of an inside look here? What are some of the most surprising things that you've learned through your, your biotech portfolio founders? Yeah, well, one thing 
to say is that I really feel super lucky to have this job working at YC because I get to learn about all kinds of really awesome things in the world. Um, and I, it's hard to imagine how I could get to learn about all these really cool things working, you know, in, in, in any other job. Um, and so like, I'll give a couple of examples. We funded this company called Solugen, as you mentioned earlier, for, for, for folks who don't know, Solugen is an industrial bio company. They make a new production process for hydrogen peroxide and they today produce truckloads of hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> and like through working with Solugen, I got to learn about the hydrogen peroxide market, which was like totally awesome. I never really knew anything about the hydrogen peroxide market. And we funded this company called CureBase, which is creating a way to do decentralized clinical trials. And through that, I got to learn a lot about like how the economics of clinical trials work and uh, a whole lot about that market. And um, so I've gotten to learn a lot about all kinds of different cool markets over the years. Um, some of the things that have surprised me about the biotech portfolio, I would say the thing that has probably surprised me the most is how often companies end up succeeding. Like there's a reputation, I think, that biotech things are super risky and the success rates are very low because usually like, I don't know, it, it doesn't work or something. Um, but actually, if I look at the biotech companies that we funded since 2015, very few of them have actually failed. Almost all of them are actually still working on more or less the original idea. And sometimes they've had to evolve like the, the, the technique that they do in order to accomplish it. But the success rate has been far higher than we expected. That's awesome to hear. And would love to hear just generally, where do you think biotech will be in the year 2050? Oh, 2050. Boy, that's a long time. Um, well, I hope that in the future, we become better and better able to like engineer biology ourselves, which we've obviously made enormous strides of that in the, in the last 20 years. And that's what's sort of like unlocking the, the, uh, the biotech revolution that we're having now. Um, today, we still live in a world in which biotechs do a lot of things in-house, sort of like full stack. If you look at software companies and sort of the evolution of how software companies have gone, back in 2005, in order to launch a website, you basically had to build everything yourself from like the credit card processor to the thing that like texted you if your servers went down in the middle of the night. There is there is all this like infrastructure that every company basically had to rebuild themselves. And in biotech, that is still, I think, too true, where um, every biotech company, as they go, as they become more advanced, often ends up rebuilding a lot of the same infrastructure. And what I hope we will move towards is a world that is a lot more like the way building an internet company works today, which is each company really gets to focus on just the one thing that they do uniquely well and gets to depend on other companies to do everything else in the company. And so sort of the scope of things that you have to be good at, the scope of things that you have to invest in and build in order to get going as a company just keeps getting smaller and smaller every year. 
And to dial it in more towards YC, y'all have evolved a lot since 2005, needless to say. And and even in the last few years since I've been in the batch, uh, evolved even further. Can you describe Y Combinator in 2050? Where will you be? Hmm. So when Paul Graham and Jessica created Y Combinator, they always wanted it to be what they call a hundred year institution. And um, that's actually very unusual for a company. If you look at like the S&P 500, almost all the companies in the S&P 500 are less than hundred years old. It actually turns out that companies tend not to last that long. They tend to turn over pretty quickly because the world changes and the products that once made sense don't, don't make sense anymore. However, if you look at great universities, great universities turn over much less quickly. The top universities in the country right now, you know, Harvard and Stanford and, and Yale and MIT are largely the same as they were 100 years ago. It really hasn't changed much. Harvard itself, I think, is like 400 years old. And so there's something about universities that cause them to last for a really long time. And it was always Paul and Jessica's vision that Y Combinator would be more like a great university than like a, than like a company. And I, I think the essential difference is that universities are fundamentally like a nexus of smart people. Um, Harvard is 400 years old. The curriculum of Harvard today has nothing to do with what the curriculum was of Harvard 400 years ago. Um, the actual programs at Harvard have changed completely many times over that 400 year history. And, but um, smart people still wanna go to Harvard and that's why it has continued to be successful. And so I anticipate a future for Y Combinator that looks something like that. I don't know how the Y Combinator program will be structured in 2050. My guess is it won't look very similar to the way that the Y Combinator program is structured today, but I hope that it will still occupy a similar role in the ecosystem as a place where ambitious people who want to start companies want to go to learn how to do it and to get help from people who've done it before. Fantastic. Thanks, Jared. We're grateful for your time. What an incredible episode. Looking forward to having you back on the show. Thank you both so much for having me. It was great to get to talk about YC. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.